brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to a special recording of the Penguin podcast. It's also going out as a streamed event, so welcome to everyone watching at home. My name is Nihal Arthanaika, and today my guest is a writer, quite obviously, hip-hop artist, broadcaster and campaigner. His name is Darren McGarvey. His best-selling and acclaimed first book, Poverty Safari, was awarded the Orwell Prize for Political Writing. His latest book, The Social Distance Between Us, How Remote Politics Wrecked Britain, is a searing look at the gap between the powerful and the powerless, which asks uncomfortable questions about the role of the middle class in perpetuating inequality. Darren, nice to see you. Hello now, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm going to start with a question that you may regard to be platitudinal or platitudinous, and that is, where does optimism come from? Well, that's a good question. Obviously, for people like myself who have been concerned for much of our life with some of the grimmer aspects of life in uh, a country like Britain, then it can we can give the impression that we are very negative because we're issuing the, the feel-good story that you could potentially tell and that a lot of people are very successful in how they tell it. And instead, we tend to focus on those that are left behind and trying to create a vivid, authentic, compassionate picture of what it is that they experience. But actually, I think for me, the optimism on a personal level is expressed in the fact that I even bother, you know, that I bother to try and talk about it, that I go out to meet people and speak to people. And anyone who is in any kind of game like this, uh, whether it's a journalist, whether it's an author, a campaigner, a social worker, a teacher, whoever it might be, yes, they might feel overwhelmed by the various burdens that come with immersing yourself in that social reality all the time. But at the same time, the fact that there is a consistent level of commitment and engagement and contact with the issues, I think, in itself is an expression of optimism that things can change, but you have to paint the picture that will inspire enough people to create that political incentive required for, for, for our leaders to take the action that is necessary. What role does anger play in being able to do what you do? Is it something that you have to tone down in order to be able to be potentially more lucid? Or is it actually the fundamental fuel of what you need to be able to do what you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it begins, it begins with anger or it begins with some kind of disturbance emotionally. It could be just anger at some basic hypocrisy, a logical fallacy dispensed by someone who on paper should know much better. Or it, it might be something that you, despite your best efforts, end up taking quite personally, even though it's not happened to you. But ultimately, I feel personally for me, my best work and my most useful work is when it begins from a place of anger and then I look for new insight and and a recognition that you don't have to be the most emotionally intelligent person to know that that kind of fury and that rage that comes to us in the moment, it certainly concentrates the mind, but it doesn't place us on a plane of open-mindedness. It doesn't make us persuasive to people who don't have the full picture that we have. And so I try to be kind of intermittent with the anger the real anger, 
and then I learn to channel it. And I do that really not just because I think it makes for for better writing, clearer writing, more persuasive writing, uh, but also because I understand what it's like to be on the receiving end of a very furious rant and all the well in the world. We are not very receptive to taking on new ideas or admitting that our old ideas are wrong when we are under the duress of someone else's anger. And I think I write not just for the people who agree with me, but I write for people who are looking to be persuaded. And so you have to show more emotional range when you are trying to braid together those different readerships and engage them in reading the same book. In what respects are you looking to be persuaded? Because reading The Social Distance Between Us, I see where you're persuading. But what about your own ability to be persuaded? I mean, for me, uh, people only see the end product of a book. So they don't see the journey often that the writer has been on as they have wrestled with different issues uh, in the creation of the book. And so actually, I began from a place of which I would say was far more temperate. In 2019, when I first set out to write this work, and it was much more in line with the tone of my first book, Poverty Safari, which itself was written when I was in a bit of a bubble. We had had our first child. I had launched a successful crowdfund to start writing a book. We moved to a nice flat in a plush part of town. And I was flying very high in my recovery. And in my recovery, you know, I learn all about how to be vigilant in the face of resentment and anger and fear, because these can become the the, the germinal emotional events that lead to relapses into drinking. And so I was feeling very kind of magnanimous spiritually. Of course, when you go into lockdown, it doesn't matter who's in a bubble. It's all it's all coming to the fore, the truth of our society, whether we see it out in our front door, whether it's it's finally getting the airtime that it deserves. And we're also beginning to see how how little a lot a lot of people uh, understand about that, people who have, have big platforms. And so actually the first persuasion for me was persuading me that I had to get a bit more angry, that I had to get at least one glove off and, and change my tone slightly. And Frankie Boyle made an interesting joke the other night uh, at my launch event in Glasgow, one of many interesting jokes. And uh, <laughs> he said, uh, "He said, so you've been you've been reviewed very generously in the Times. Does that worry you?" And he he obviously knew that was a bit cheeky, but he was bang on. There's a difficult balance to be struck between understanding how our culture works in the landscape you're launching a book into but also honouring and being true to how you actually feel. And so this for me was more of a stretch to go from a place of magnanimity to, to, to a place of controlled anger, to really infuse the book with that. And uh, as for other like political issues, if you read the chapter on Blairism, you will see that I'm quite generous in my assessment of it. I try to be fair and recognise, I understand the attraction with Blair. When he's on TV, I still tune in to see what he has to say as much as I disagree profoundly with particularly the Iraq war, and I know we won't get into it, but at the same time, that doesn't mean everything that he says can be discarded as idiocy because actually he has a great analytical mind. So in that sense, you can see I wrestle with it all the time. Even when I come down hard on someone, the chapter on conservatism, it's littered with provisos and caveats. It's acknowledging that in conservatism you have beliefs and values which have 
been demonstrated for centuries to work really well in the right context. And that's sort of stuff you won't hear from a lot of my comrades on the left. They wouldn't bother to make the effort to do that, and maybe they shouldn't. Um, but I think that's where I'm different. So where does the dialogue begin then? Because two entrenched sides rarely... Actually, no, it's not really, because we've seen throughout history two entrenched sides have found the Northern Ireland peace process being a prime example of that. Where does the dialogue begin for you, Darren? It begins in the real world. And I think this is where the theme of the book, Proximity, really begins to to show itself. Um, we have experienced a real incursion into our agreed reality in the form of this revolutionary, radical social media technology. Radical for how powerful it is, radical for the voice and the sense of connection that we gain, but also radical in the fact that we don't have any ownership over it. We communicate on terms that are based on the often perverse incentives of multinational corporations. And so while there is certainly a place for dialogue on there, there is also a place for confusion, misunderstanding, and drawing really inaccurate conclusions as to the intentions of the people that we disagree with. And I think that's where disagreement becomes most painful. If you walked into this room here and and you hit me in the head with a door by mistake, but I made the assumption that you deliberately hit me in the head with the door. I still got hit in the head with the door, but it hurts more because I think that you've done it on purpose. And I think when we, we're inferring people's intentions from social media, then we, we become doubly disturbed emotionally when we're in, in, in disagreement. Getting out into the real world, all your natural systems internally that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, all they all become optimal. And even where someone is disagreeable, there is also this other contrary urge to reconcile, to cooperate, because this is part of our nature. And so I'm I'm always glad to get out wherever I go and speak to people in real life and, and, and have frank discussions and stand my ground, as I often have to do. But there is no substitute for being in a room hearing what someone has to say and also being able to read their body language, their voice tone, their gaze direction, all of this other form of communication that we're always interpreting subconsciously. Unfortunately, with two years of lockdown, you know, there's not been a great opportunity to do that. But I would certainly hope that uh, I'll get the chance to do that in the coming weeks and months. Why is it that a person from a working class background, Darren, not everyone, of course, but why does it occur on occasion that they feel guilty for being successful or springboarding themselves out of their beginnings? I can only speak for myself, really, uh, as much as I I probably am slightly grandiose enough to speculate on behalf of the tens of millions of other working class people out there and the small percentage of them who have become successful enough to feel guilty about it. For me, there is a mixture of betrayal, survivor's guilt, and then also, perhaps this is linked to trauma, a fear that there will be some ultimate reckoning or reprisal for stating my view, for expressing my opinions or emotions, that there will be some final punishment for me to pay. And so that's that's me personally based on my experiences and the various lenses at different points in my life through which I've construed what's going on and where I am. But then there's also the very appropriate level of discomfort that comes from knowing 
that people who are culturally and socially and economically just through the wall from you are experiencing a whole other range of pressures and strains on their individual minds and bodies, on their households, on their communities. And you forget that surprisingly quickly when the strain is removed from you. And I think that this actually, for all of the, the discomfort that I have experienced at different points when wrestling with these ideas, I think that that has actually informed the book. I think that it's given the book something that's quite fresh in the sense that I understand a little bit on both sides of this class dynamic. No, I understand also that not everyone is going to grant me that class analysis. People resist categorization and then they defy it. And and I respect that. I just don't see any other lens that helps us construe what's going on better than class does. I mean, it all really comes down to postcode. It tells us so much. And uh, and so while the, it, it's, it's a sort of, it's a yin and a yang when it comes to those feelings of, of survivor's guilt that you, you mention, because actually I think I'm bringing something new to the table or new for this moment in time uh, when I'm not just writing from one side of the fence here. Interesting you talk in the opening of the book about class denialists, because obviously people of colour hear that all the time they call it identity politics and try and denigrate any conversation about slavery or Britain's past, etc. Um, what particularly infuriates you about those who say, look, we need to move on in a classless society? It's a meritocracy. Work hard, you'll get what you want. Yeah, Arguments I'm uh, sure you've heard many times before. Yeah, I thought, I thought that it would be good to just really start the book with that, just to kind of clear the brush and set the table. Just to say, look, I'm not going to spend more than one chapter trying to persuade you about class being a real thing. So if that's not your bag, just put the book down. I'm happy that you've bought it. And I think that sets the tone for the book. You know, I kind of come out swinging and that was very deliberate. Obviously, I think that while someone maybe intellectually will, will very, very earnestly believe that class is reductive, and uh, reductive, not necessarily looking at it through an economic lens, but some people feel that they're making a value judgment about someone when they ask them what social class they are or make assumptions about what social class they are. But that's because we've, in Britain, allowed ourselves to become sidetracked into this class discussion where you're just sort of self-identifying as, as a class based on how you feel, based on what TV you watch. When actually, you know, it's it's about a relationship to the labour market first and foremost. And it's about how hard we have to work to meet our basic needs and how susceptible to exploitation we are in the workplace. And for me, you know, people can deny it till the cows come home, that's fine. But it's when you begin to look at those more objective measurements that it becomes harder to deny that obviously class is a factor. I mean, you can call it something else if that's more comforting for you. But you can't get away from the fact that our economic structure necessitates class inequality and, in fact, reproduces class inequality as a means of authenticating itself in the eyes of those who it's primarily configured to serve. What, what does that mean? Talk, just explain that idea of it authenticating itself. Yeah, so, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not to get too into the kind of the ideology of it, but if you if you look at the labour market, if you look at education in particular and the relationship between the two, we're always being told about how governments are trying to close the attainment gap. 
right? And this is the this is the differentials and educational outcomes between kids who grow up in poorer postcodes and kids who grow up in plusher postcodes. Now, without making value judgments about either side, while obviously the rhetoric is comforting that we're closing the educational gap, actually it's baked into the country's industrial strategy because from these respective educational domains, you have pipelines that go directly to different parts of the labour market, the low-paid precarious work and the higher-paid professional jobs. And then when you look at the independent school sector, which is ultimately the safety valve just in case Britain does become a meritocracy, that means you can just buy your way out of it. You don't have to compete. So if you did close the attainment gap, what would happen is that there would be no one to do all of the precarious low-paid jobs because the kids from the lower-class backgrounds would be on an even playing field and they would be competing with the kids who move from the plusher postcodes that are are in the catchment areas with the, the better schools. And they're just in their own little property grade bubble. You know, the house prices inflate the grades, the grades inflate the house prices, and we all know how that goes. So, yes, that's what I mean by authenticating itself, because if that if that inequality wasn't being reproduced, then that is why that, that would be said that the system is not working correctly. So when, when politicians came out in the algorithm scandal, the exams algorithm scandal, and they says, we can't give pupils their teachers estimated grades because this would question the integrity of the entire system of education. That's what they were saying. They were saying, we have to produce inequality and the kids from poorer backgrounds need to be moderated more harshly because historically, kids from poorer backgrounds get worse grades. And of course, questioning the validity of the teachers' own assessments of children that they have known for many years. It's another part of that, as you wrote in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Proximity. You brought that word up earlier on. And one thing that's is the, the wealthier you get your proximity to, not so much in London where you can still see, you'll see million pound, two million pound houses, and then there'll be social housing just around the corner. I don't know what it's like in Glasgow, but I know certainly near Manchester where I live, those those things do not happen. Of course, having proximity did not stop Grenfell from happening. So, you know, we know that for a fact. But f- for you then, seeing these distances, how do you get people to understand when geographically they don't see it and then in some respects they don't want to see it? Uh, it's a good question. And actually, sometimes it's it's probably a safer bet to to read whatever room you're in and recognise that some people are not looking to be persuaded and not to really waste energy on them. For me, unfortunately, the situation that society has to get to is that the inequality, or or rather the 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 economic dysfunction, it has to spread from the poor and working class and it has to become contagious to the lower middle class because this will open up the discussion because the lower middle class are are are, are a demographic that doesn't have to really fight as hard for basic things. It's a matter of intuition for a politician to serve those interests because often those are interests that a politician shares. And so... It's, it's usually when an, an issue begins to affect the more electorally lucrative demographics that it becomes a legitimate thing to talk about in some of the papers and news shows that normally would say, oh, well, this is the poor, this is the poor that deal with that, and it's looked at through a different lens. So if you look at the, the response during the pandemic, we're talking about 
deploying the sort of financial support that you would have only two years prior to the pandemic have said would have been tyrannical. And this money was given, not in the form of benefits, means tested. This money was just for self-employed people. It was just put in your national insurance number and we'll send you this money in three days, as much as £7,000. Then there was all the COVID relief for businesses and other enterprises and organisations. And while I don't begrudge anyone uh, some free money from the government, we all know it's not free. At the same time, it's it's amazing how quickly that response occurred and how intuitive that response was and, and the ease with which that money became available. And up until that point, the whole discussion about government handouts was, you're a scrounger. You know, you're a scrounger and you need to pull yourself up with your bootstraps and stop saying everything is a systemic problem. And then suddenly a pandemic happens and everyone realises no amount of merit, no amount of taking personal responsibility is going to open the economy so that you can get out to work. And so I think a similar situation, unfortunately, I feel would have to occur consistently where it's no longer taboo to talk about the systemic nature of some of the problems that we face. Uh, because just now that I think is, is, is being kind of outlawed almost or seen as some kind of left wing indulgence. But the way things are going with the cost of living and how constrained the UK government is through its commitment to this extreme economic ideology, which is now going to try and offer up benefit claimants to the housing market. <laughs> I mean, that is just a snake eating itself, you know. So unfortunately, I don't I don't know where else the society can go except get worse. And as it does, more people begin to get up in arms about things. How do you assess what happened in the 2019 election, where lots of northern constituencies, which had been Labour for decades, decided to switch? Obviously, there are so many different theories out there, and I think some are easier to take serious than, than others. But... My feeling uh, generally is that Labour continues to pay a price for even far as, as far back as the Blair years, not just in terms of some of the decisions that were made or how it, it basically tried to put, put a big proximity gap between itself and its own history and some of the kind of slick spin stuff that obviously is, is necessary to an extent in a fast-paced media environment, but can also lead to people looking and sounding very inauthentic. And then, you, you know, you have a couple of populists who roll up, and, uh, and in contrast to that slickness, which obviously wasn't just attributable to Blair and New Labour, but that, that became the norm. That then became Cameron's whole thing, and everyone, you know, that became the paradigm presentationally for politicians. And then you get somebody like Boris or somebody like Nigel Farage or online people like Tommy Robinson, and these figures become kind of transfixing, you know, when the media environment is so sterile. And and I, I think that it was that dynamic that kind of led to the, the, the Brexit situation where people developed a sort of, it can't get any much worse than it is, so fuck it kind of attitude and and that sort of let a bit of a genie out of the bottle which has been very skillfully manipulated going forward so we see this constant inflaming of culture war issues and we see a culture war that is offered up uh, for people to become invested in as a distraction from the class inequality which is systemic which many people taxi drivers driving around 
listening to Nick Ferrari or some other Muppet, and they really feel that these people are speaking for them. And then they'll completely launch into another conversation about how they have to pay a £1,000 to the taxi company before they even make a penny because they've got the fuel to pay and they've got the machine to pay and the car to rent. And there's never any correlation when you speak to someone who is perpetually being drawn into that culture war. There's no connection between, don't you see that this, while some of these issues might be important, issues like free speech, of course important. Issues about censorship, of course important. But people are mining that stuff for money and outrage clicks and views. And uh, it's just, as far as I'm concerned, a bunch of charlatans. And these are the people who don't want to talk about class now, you know? And of course they don't. So it's very clear whose interests they serve. And so for me, the big challenge as a writer is, what sort of tone do I take with that taxi driver? Because I know that other people on the left or maybe middle-class liberals and stuff, these are sort of people that they wouldn't even talk to. They would write them off as knuckleheads. They would write them off as the kind of white van man. But politically, no one's getting anywhere unless you can speak directly to that particular constituency and try and help to recontextualise some of that anger that they're experiencing. But it's definitely, it's been a long road from Brexit up to 2019. It's just getting worse. Each leader comes in and they're worse than the last. It's getting to the point where, you know, you start thinking, I miss David Cameron a little bit. Do you know what I mean? I miss someone that bland. Uh, I miss someone who kind of looks and sounds like he knows what he's doing. Even if he doesn't, I can put my head in the pillow at night and think, well, at least an adult is in Downing Street. And that is a bad place to be when you miss David Cameron. How does the way you speak create a distance between social classes? In general, or me, myself, personally? Let's start with you, because you wrote about it in the book Mm. in both ways. Yeah. So in my life, I've kind of developed a bit of a skill for, shall we say, modulating my speech style. And this is really... This is media Glaswegian that I'm hearing now. Yeah, so this is like, um, if I say in an average day, so say I begin my day going to give a talk to some young men at a youth club who are at risk of, of police involvement. The way I'll talk's a bit different. I'll be like, all right, wee man, how you doing? What you up to? What's that boxing ring? You into boxing? You into the football? Blah, blah, blah. But I recognise that in another environment, then there might be a different demand communication-wise. And so if I'm speaking to an English audience, I might slow my language or speech down a little bit until they are tuned in to my frequency and then I might pull it back a little bit or or to what's more natural to me. But what I've also recognised, and this is through speaking to experts in the field of linguistics, is that even where I make a very conscious effort to communicate in a manner that I feel is accessible. My vocal anatomy has developed to the extent that it's almost impossible for me to sound as clear and polite to other people as I would like to. And so sometimes that creates not just a distance between the different people that I might be speaking to, but it creates a distance within me. It creates a distance within me because I I feel a sense of frustration because I know that a lot of the people whose inferior communication skills I accommodate by changing the way that I speak have nowhere near as firm a grasp of language as I do. 
and yet because there is some little inflection in the voice or something that they interpret as angry or uncontrolled, then they get to walk away from that dynamic thinking that they're superior when it's very clear that they aren't. And I don't mind being seen as inferior, but I don't like people thinking they're better when there's not a lot of evidence for it. You know, that's the problem. So that's for for the personal thing. I mean, one of the most interesting things about language generally in Britain is how it's, um, it's a broadcast of rank. I mean, we both, you, you far longer than I, you know, work at, at, at the BBC. We understand there is a subtle pressure to conform to a particular, not just range of, of, of topics sometimes or range of discussion, but a way of speaking, a manner, a temperament. And so this can be challenging, you know, when when actually the, the, the received pronunciation style that anyone who gets a presenting gig on the BBC has to at some point contend with or come up with some cover version of. It's spoken by a tiny percentage of the population. And unlike every other dialect in Britain, it doesn't emerge from a culture geographically, but through institutional conditioning. And so in a sense, it's weird that people who speak that way are thought automatically to be more trustworthy or more intelligent or more insightful. Because actually sometimes what that language and our cultural conditioning to, to just trust it, actually it, it conceals sometimes the ineptitude of, of people who went to private school, conceals their malevolence. It conceals how useless they are in the grand scheme of what we face as a country. But we're so conditioned to kind of think, well, he looks a certain way and sounds a certain way. I mean, it's only relatively recently that a lot of people have really really known their bones now. Boris Johnson has no redeeming qualities. I think for a while people thought maybe he was some grand strategist, some Machiavellian figure. Or people thought, no, he's just playing the fool until he gets in power and then maybe he's going he's gonna to have an ace up his sleeve. This is a man whose only concern in life is himself. And and after all these decades and centuries of conditioning, normal people just taught to respect the voice of authority and just understand that they know better. And that illusion has been absolutely smashed. And it's 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 both heartening and terrifying. Hmm. I guess you won't see whether it's been smashed or not until a next election. Well, it's been smashed for Boris Johnson, I think. I don't see him being re-elected. It's just a case of what, you know, what invertebrate wants to come in behind him and mop up after it and make the modifications to, to, to try and draw some sort of contrast uh, between themselves and him. Then again, of course, you never know. Now, one of the things we do here on the Penguin Podcast is ask our authors to bring some objects with them. Now, you have taken the definition and widened it, which I think is very interesting. So when we asked you about an object that has changed you, your answer was about spending more time in plusher parts of the city. Yeah. And realising and being reminded of the fact that your upbringing was not quote-unquote normal, whatever that means. Ah, right, okay. So I've just misread that then. There was no attempt no attempt on my part to... to to be a smarter, certainly not. I think I've just misread it. <laughs> I've not. just misread no, it. No, it's not. I've missed, missed the object aspect of it, and I just thought, what's changed you? Yes. Um, and so I can answer that anyway. Yeah, basically, I, that was quite... Well, it's a, it's a suitably broad question, to yeah. be fair, yeah. to you. It was the first time in my life that I started to understand that you could have a different kind of life from the one that you had. 
I grew up in a part of Glasgow that was kind of all consuming. You know, if you travelled, you travelled to the West Coast or you travelled into the city centre. And uh, it was in my teens when I started to go to a child psychologist. And I remember emerging from the Hillhead Underground and just a feeling of safety just engulfing me, a feeling of security. You know, all that fear of violence and mockery and ridicule and uh, consequences and reprisal, it all just went away. People seem to be more expressive. They gesticulate. When they speak, They there was more ethnic diversity. It was just immediately striking, uh, given I had grown up in a mostly white working-class area where the primary language being spoken is the language of violence, whether it's being communicated or interpreted literally or, or, or otherwise. Um, so that was a big a big uh, change in my life, and I think that's when my whole interest in class, which obviously was a concept I'd been introduced to many years prior, I grew up in quite a political family at a time of great struggle with the Conservative government in the 70s and 80s. That's when I started thinking, all oh, right, I understand how this maps onto the real world. The buses all run in time here, plus everyone can get the train and everyone has two cars and a bike. And there's no dog duck gauntlet that you have to walk. And uh, you don't feel that for wearing a certain item of clothing, uh, you might be punched in the face. Um, but that's what it was like growing up where I grew up. We also asked you about a book you read as a child and you said you didn't read much as a child. So how did you discover books later on in life and how? Um, well, it's, it's interesting because what I thought was, I mean, I remember I did a, I did the Damien Barr's book club last year and, um, you know, before you go on, you get a camera shoved in your face, they ask you a bunch of questions. And one of the questions is, you know, what, what is your top three books of the year? And I just was like, I'm going to have to stop you there. Do you know what I mean? I said, and it's interesting, this is one of the things that can be difficult when you're traversing class dynamics. Because when you go into a middle class sphere, there's just this assumption that you're read, you're well read. And it can be intimidating to hold your hands up and go, actually, um, I didn't read as a kid, you know, and no one read to me. And because then you think, well, they're going to think that I wasn't raised right, because that's they, they think that that's normal. So anything outside of that is abnormal. And I thought, well, no, I'll just explain because my family was more musical. We were all encouraged to express ourselves through musical instruments, singing, uh, drawing. My uncle went to the Glasgow School of Art. My auntie Rosie was an MSP in the first Scottish Parliament. My dad raised three kids by himself and then moved into education. And he's been a songwriter all of his life. But if you sat us down and asked us about literature, we probably wouldn't have a great deal to say. But it doesn't mean that we're not cultured. I got into reading later, actually, because I enjoy listening to people speak. I enjoy listening to people debate. And I enjoy people who talk well about a specific subject. And really, that is my reading. That is mostly my reading. I mean, I can get, I can get into a book if I have to, but that muscle's underdeveloped. Audio seems to be the way that is a more natural learning pattern for me. So so this kind of era of YouTube and all of these platforms where people discuss ideas, is very useful for me. It helps me to catch up with a lot of my contemporaries 
who are all university educated, whatever kind of profession I happen to be in that month. And so while I would love to sit here and say, oh, you know, I just I just felt an immediate affinity with Charles Dickens or um, or even George Orwell, that's a name that keeps coming up in terms of my own writing. The first time that I listened to 1984, my life was so bad, I used to put the 1984 audiobook on to help me go to sleep. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, wow. Wow. That's how, as fairy tales go. That's how that's miserable I was when dark. I was an alcoholic. Pretty dark fairy tale that is, Darren, my friend. Pretty dark fairy tale indeed. Um, talking about audio, something you use every day, you say, is music. Just give us, here's a thing to put you on the spot for, three albums you constantly revisit. Oh wow! Right, okay. Well, I mean, right now I'm I'm going back through Kendrick Lamar's catalogue. Um, I still haven't quite. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to Kendrick before this. Yeah, yeah. I still haven't quite decoded this new record yet. Um, but there are a few songs on it that I'm really sitting with and I'm putting on every day, and trying to kind of figure out is this is this hard to decode because he's built that into the album because he's very intentional in terms of how he constructs his music. Mm. But yes, that Kendrick's catalogue generally is something that I revisit. In terms of, of, of other hip-hop records, I've actually been taking a lot of pleasure in going back and listening to a lot of the, the music that my friend Sammy got me into when I was just in my teens. It was him that really kind of introduced me to, to American hip-hop. And so this was a time, it was, it was just kind of just before sort of Dr. Dre took over the airwaves for the best part of 10 years. So you had artists like Exhibit putting out brilliant albums, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Restless. You had uh, great the great Wu-Tang records of the late 90s and the Wu-Tang seeing a lot of mainstream success. Um, and then that was just right on the cusp of, of Eminem's early work, which I think was the thing that sort of let me know I definitely had something I could contribute to that culture because it was the first time that I'd heard a rapper talking about wanting to hit his mother over the head with a shovel. Um, and I thought, ah, oh, right, here's something I can relate to. So there's a big spread, but I mean, I'm, I've never been a snob with hip-hop. There are underground artists that I love and that I would say are probably more talented and have stronger catalogues than a lot of the mainstream people we, we celebrate. But I'm as big a fan of Jay-Z as I am of Aesop Rock. Um, I just appreciate nice lyrics and, and, and I appreciate someone who's got an ear for, for good production. And um, and it really doesn't matter where it comes from, if it's in the charts or if three people have heard of it. If it's good, it's good. Um, the last object was something that inspires you. And you talked about someone walking into the gym. Yeah. Tell us more yeah. about that. I know it was, it's, it was funny when I was writing that. I was like, I've never shared this with anybody before. There are things about me that are so ingrained in who I am that I wouldn't think to share them. And one of them is that. Um, I often, I just feel quite moved when I see someone trying to confront a challenge in their life, you know, whatever it might be. And I use the example of the gym just because I, I'm in the gym a lot and I, and I see that. Someone coming in who is, is clearly got a big big health and fitness journey ahead of them you know, and, and it's visible and you can see it. But you can see it not just necessarily in the fact that they, they might be quite heavy set. You can see it in their body language when they walk in the door. They have no confidence, you know. 
in a sense, they've turned back up at the gym because they're so desperate to change that they're going to put themselves through the discomfort of stepping into an environment where they feel everyone is looking at them or they feel that everyone is judging them. When actually most people in the gym probably feel like I do when they see someone like that because we're all in the gym for the same reason. And when I see that, then I feel quite moved. And uh, I've got to kind of stop myself from going over and patronising people and get, I don't talk to people in the gym, but sometimes I just want to walk up to the person and say, you can fucking do this. You can do this, man. And good on you for being here. And you're welcome here. And keep coming back here. And uh, I, 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 it does inspire me and also gives me a lot of gratitude because, you know, you can get kind of caught up in your own little dynamic in your own mind with your own ego having a conversation with you about yourself. And that's always a barrel of laughs. Um, so sometimes it's 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 good to sort of, it's good to appreciate where everyone is at and also it helps you to see, you know, where you've progressed, where you need to progress more without necessarily comparing yourself to other people, but just having that gratitude. Because I remember when I first stepped in the gym and I was nearly 35% body fat, I had no plan after I stopped smoking. I just ate chocolate and I just exploded and my legs would chafe and I would be sweating and I wouldn't be able to bend down to do basic things. And and I had always been pretty lean, not through exercise, but just that was my metabolism in my 20s. So when that kicked 30s door down, then suddenly I realised, hang on, genetically I'm actually going to be one of those people who has to get their legs sawn off at some point. You know, so I appreciate the journey people have and I do find it moving and I do find it inspiring. Would you be satisfied if the people who are as passionate about the issues that you are passionate about were the only people that read The Social Distance Between Us and amplified it? And if not, how do you get those who aren't those people to read it? A conundrum. Um, I think in a sense you can kind of almost... You can almost bet on anyone who read Poverty Safari and enjoyed it will at least dabble in the new book. And having gotten out around the country at various points when it's been permitted, I realise I have an unusual audience in the sense that if you come in my gig in Glasgow, what you're going to see is you're going to see teenagers, their parents, you're going to see more than half the audience is female you're going to see middle class people working class people and you're going to see very representatives of various factions of the left and you're even going to see a, a kind of a cohort of conservatives in there who might not necessarily be wearing their politics on their sleeve that particular night so i, I, I quite enjoy that i quite enjoy that and i and i want to cultivate that um, because I think that that keeps me on my toes. And uh, if all the people that agree with some aspect of the book buy it, and that's all that buy it, I'll still be grateful. I mean, I realise as much as you get adjusted to whatever your circumstances are, man, I'm close to the real world out there, man, so I know how good it is to be a writer and to have a platform. I mean, pretty much took over Radio 4 this week, and that is just... Mate, that's just mad. That's that's. I got two spots that every writer who has a book out this week is chasing all year. Do you know? And uh, and there'll still be some part of me that's like, this isn't good enough. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Why hasn't it went viral? 
where where's Jeremy Vine? Do you know what I mean? It's just like so I need to watch my gratitude. But I mean, obviously, you want as many people to read it as possible. But it's definitely kind of sternly written for people who don't agree. Also, you know, and 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 I, I, that was quite cathartic for me. You know, to kind of to kind of feel like I'm sort of standing and looking some people in the eye. The stuff about the Jeremy Kyle show, in particular, that chapter. Uh, just, I think there was a point where we maybe were talking about dropping it, and I was like, no, no, no. I was like, I've took, I've took every editorial suggestion on board because I like to accept guidance and I want to learn. But I'm a musician, and that's my guitar solo. You know what I mean? Like, and amongst all of this conventional structure, just let me get at him because I have some things that I want to say. So I'll take anything that comes, man. I'm just happy to be riding the wave for as long as I am. Darren McGarvey, it's been a pleasure, man. Really has to hear what you have to say and your perspective on the world that we live in. Thank you, Darren. Thanks, Neil. Now, if you don't already, then why not subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode? And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, as ever, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Darren's work, go to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you again soon.